Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and thank you so much for bringing us here safely today, um, for feeding us with your body and blood and your supper. I pray, Lord, that uh, as we study your word, we will thank your thoughts after you uh, and, and interpret all of reality um, in the way that you would have us interpret it. And Lord, I pray that in this we will be made new. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. All right. Okay, so I'm going to do what I did last week and start off by mentioning some resources. I'm going to try to do this every week. Um, this week, we've got uh, two different books. Primeval Saints, Studies in the Patriarchs of Genesis by James Jordan. So it's, a, it's a pretty interesting book. I, I recommend that one. Um, he basically you know, goes through uh, Adam, contrasts uh, Adam with Cain. He goes and contrasts Adam's son Seth uh, uh, with Cain and so on. And then uh, he talks about Noah and Ham and uh, Nimrod, all kinds of people in the Old Testament. So um, I highly recommend this book if you're, if you're interested in um, just learning more about the patriarchs, but also sort of learning how um, James Jordan and people of his ilk, I guess you would say, uh, read the Bible. Um, and this, very, this, I think correctly, and in many cases, this very typological, symbolic kind of way. Um, I certainly think it's real, real flesh and blood history, but there's still lots of symbolism involved because the Bible is an ancient piece of literature, um, amongst other things. So, um, great book. This next one is again by James Jordan. This is sort of jumping into the deep end of his, you know, reading of Scripture, and it's called Through New Eyes, Developing a Biblical View of the World. One of the things I like about this um, is that he goes, uh, actually, let me just tell you, real, just look at the table of contents and tell you. He goes through, um, he starts by uh, talking about symbolism and worldview. That's the third chapter in this book. And um, basically how all of reality is uh, made up of symbols that, uh, that are already pre-interpreted by God, so to speak. So there's none of this sort of postmodern, like, you know, Everything is just a symbol that points to some other symbol that points to some other symbol, and you basically get this infinite regress of, of nothingness um, or fixing meaning all on your own. Um, from uh, your own perspective, he, he's basically showing that this is not uh, the biblical worldview and that all of reality is shot through with meaning because all of these symbols in reality are already pre-interpreted for us. I mean, I think that's some of the philosophy behind what he's doing. Um, but... Uh, so chapter 4, the world as God's house. Then he goes through and talks about the symbolism of the sun, moon, and stars, rocks, gold, and gems, trees, and thorns, which we'll mention a little bit today, and on and on. So uh, re really, really interesting book. Yes? What's the name of that one? Through New Eyes by James Jordan. Yes. Uh, if you don't want to buy the book, there is a website you can visit with which has tons of James Jordan and Peter Lightheart's writings on it and lots of other people. Uh, it's called Theophilus Institute, uh, theophilusinstitute.com, I think, or .org or something is their, their address. So anyway, great resources there if, if you're interested in that, okay? Um, all right, so I'm going to... I'm not going to go the entire time today. <laughs> we're going to, like... We're, we're going to get through this, and I don't care where I am. We're going to stop so that we can at least have some Q&A or just people comment. So um, if you have questions, I probably won't be able to answer them. So, <laughs> um, All right. So uh, that said, 
what I want to do, I'll give you an overview of how things will hopefully run. We're going to read quite a bit from the text here in the beginning, and uh, then I'm going to go through and uh, sort of brief us again on the three-room house that God built that we talked about last week in case you, know, you didn't get to hear. I'm not going to spend tons of time on it, but in case you didn't get to hear that, uh, we'll talk about that. And then we're going to jump into uh, Genesis 3, which is the narrative of the fall. And... Um, I was supposed to cover Genesis 3 and 4, but I'm just not going to get to that. I just, don't, I just don't feel like I have enough time. So we'll talk about the fall, what happens in that dialogue with Satan and Eve, and also a little bit in Genesis 2 leading up to that and God giving Adam the command not to eat from the tree in the midst of the garden. Um, we'll talk about Adam uh, as a priest uh, because he's, he is placed in this sanctuary of, of the world that we saw last week. Uh, and his failure as a priest to keep or cultivate the garden and to also guard it. We'll talk about that. Um, we'll talk about the curse um, and basically how Satan eats dust, which also means he eats men because men are dust and dirt, and we'll get to that. Um, and First Peter 5 tells us the same thing. I, but I don't want to let the cat out of the bag yet, but we'll talk about that. And then we'll, we'll talk about some of the symbolism of thorn, uh, thorns and thistles, and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, God's provision in history and preserving a godly line uh, through uh, Noah and then ultimately to Shem, Terah, and Abraham, and ultimately to Jesus. So uh, we'll, we'll try to cover all that, okay? All right. So let's, um, let's start looking at some of the text here. Genesis 2, uh, 15 through 24. I'll probably stop and break this up a little bit, but the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden, garden of Eden to work it and keep it. We talked a little bit about the significance of that as a, a, a priest working and keeping, uh, guarding the temple and the tabernacle. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, out of the, so basically, God then creates the animals, brings the animals before Adam. Adam names the animals. Um, there's something going on there in ancient Near Eastern culture. Um, naming something has, uh, uh, or putting your name on something usually shows some type of ownership or mastery over that thing, but, um, which makes sense. I mean, Adam, we are above the animals in some sense. So, um, so he does this. Jump down to verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up, uh, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made, and from, excuse me, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Uh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay. All right. So one of the things, I guess I'll just go ahead and do this now. Um, 15, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And then 16, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you'll surely die. And then in 18, you find out Adam's alone in all this. 
Eve's not yet on the scene, at least that's how it appears to me, okay? So keep, that's going to become important later, um, as, especially as we're understanding Adam as a priest. Okay, so, um, you all with me so far? Okay. Uh, chapter 3. So, now the serpent was more crafty than, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Already twisting things up here. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. She's already mixing things up here. God didn't say anything about touching it. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be a desire to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some, of, some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. Which is, this is interesting. I'll just briefly mention something about this. The, their intuition is kind of right. Trees are provision from God. He, he provides us trees. He provided them trees for shelter, maybe from the rain, from the sun. Uh, and we know ultimately for food. So their intuition's right, but they're taking God's good gifts and provisions and they end up trying to use them the wrong way. Instead of trying to fellowship with God through these things, they end up trying to hold God at bay. So that's, I think that's interesting. Um, we tend to do this too. <laughs> um, okay, so um, where was I? Nine, right, yeah. But the Lord God, God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. There are three different addresses coming up. God addresses the serpent. God then addresses Eve, and then he addresses Adam. And this, is, this will become important later. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I, I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat, in pain you shall eat out of all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. 
And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east, remember the east-west theme we came across last week? He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. All right, so that's the text uh, that we're going to be working through. Um, and uh, I came up with a new illustration for, for this. Uh, I mean, I shouldn't say I came up with this, but people have come up with this, but um, I, I did build it from scratch. <laughs> okay, so um, we're back on. Um, so we've got, I want to just briefly go over the <clears throat> uh, sort of the, the, the temple uh, tabernacle imagery. So we've got this three-room house of the world. You've got sort of the outer world or the outer lands, the land of Eden and the garden. And these sort of correspond roughly to the Holy of Holies and the garden where God walks, where his presence is located, the holy place. Um, and then, of course, the, the, the outer court where uh, everyone could go in the tabernacle. So we looked at Job 38 and, and, and saw that as the world's being created, it's, it's described in all these architectural kinds of terms, right? We also looked at Adam as a priestly figure. He's the representative head of all of humanity. I mean, Paul's very clear about this. When, when, when Adam sinned, we all sinned, right? Um, death entered the world through Adam. Um, and, of course, death comes and touches all of us at some point. Okay, so Adam is our representative head. This corresponds roughly to the role of the priest because the priests are the representative heads of the people of Israel, right? Okay, um, so... I don't want to belabor that too much, but just try to keep some of that in mind. Um, <clears throat> this is actually an image of uh, me and Whitney when she tries to make me gluten-free things. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah. I keep telling her I love my wheat, but uh, anyway, no. Um, so, I, by the way, I hope none of these images are, like, sacrilegious or anything. They all, I do look at them to make sure they're not, but... Tell me after if you find something that shouldn't be there. But, um, but I, I thought this was a, a, a pretty rendering of uh, a terrible incident in the fall. But, um, so what I want to do is um, start talking about the fall now. But before I do that, I want to I take a step back into Genesis 2 for, for just a minute. And I want to look at, in particular, this part here. Um, where God, in, in verse 16, God gives the command to Adam not to eat of uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, okay? Um, Eve's, and then we find out in 18 that Eve's not yet on the scene. And uh, I think it's important also for helping establish that, that, that Adam is in this priestly role in this sanctuary because Eve knows by the time she has this conversation with Satan, the serpent, um, she, she's aware of the command. And I'm not saying definitively that Adam taught her this. I mean, it's always possible that God came and taught her this or told her the same thing after she was created. The text is sort of silent on that. But it's not an unreasonable inference to think that Adam took on, as a, as a priestly figure, did what priests would do. That is, taught his family. He taught his family regarding proper worship of God, in this case, proper sacramental eating. He taught his family about God's commands. So... 
Um, and when I say sacramental eating, I mean basically eating unto life or eating unto death. So uh, understanding the sac sacrament roughly is some type of religious rite or ritual or something like that that um, confers some type of uh, grace, uh, grace, blessing, or something. Okay, then I know there's a lot of debate about that, but that's roughly how I'm understanding it. And this seems to be what's going on in the garden. They're, they eat of the tree of life, and they live. Like, really take and eat it. It's a physical thing, which I'm going to do a whole thing on the sacraments, but we shouldn't be afraid of the physical world and over-spiritualize it um, because it's not clear even from the text that, that there's this great dichotomy between the, the spiritual and immaterial and, and the physical and, and God's working and communicating his grace uh, and mercy through physical things. So, but we'll get to that in another week. But so um, Adam, I think, probably taught Eve about God's command and about the eating, right? Um, and so keep that in mind. So that, that being the case, we see that um, Satan shows up and he starts having this conversation with Eve and he suggests something. He suggests that contrary to the, the foundation of the creation narrative that, um, that God's actually not the giver of good gifts. And remember, we, we said that um, if one of the things that Genesis is teaching us is it's teaching us that God does give good gifts to his people, and that's what he's about. He didn't uh, so much create us to serve him as he created us so that he might serve us. And we talked about how this is a radical reversal of the other ancient Near Eastern religions uh, that the Hebrews would have come into contact with. And, of course, this draws, I think, to our attention um, Jesus in, in what, I think, Matthew 20 and Mark 10, where he says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give, uh, to give my life as a ransom for many. So, <clears throat> so you, there seems to be this idea that God created us and gave us all the things that we need and, and, and even our desires. I mean, Adam's pretty elated when he sees Eve. He, it's not good that he's alone, and God sees this and says, hey, here, I'm going to give you someone, a helper suitable for you, and he's pretty ecstatic about that. He seems, to, he seems to recognize something of her uniqueness and special status in the created order. Um, he's pretty enamored, it seems like. Um, so the point of that is that God has established himself as the giver of good gifts, but Satan comes in and tries to undercut this. And he suggests to Eve... God's not really the giver of good gifts. He's holding something out. He's holding out this fruit, which, is, which will make you wise. It'll make you like him. There's also some debate in the text about um, whether or not uh, we should understand the term for God here to be the gods, like plural. Um, I won't get into that, but just know that that's there. That's not a crazy reading of it either. Um, and by gods, they mean uh, uh, these, these scholars who take this view mean something like angelic beings who were... Um, basically given dominion over various parts of the earth. And they have these big, long, complicated reasons for why they think this is what's going on. But that is there, so further study if you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, a guy named Michael Heiser, I think, holds to uh, a view similar to that, so you might look him up and see what he has to say about it. But um, anyway, that said, um, Satan steps in and tries to basically undercut what, what Adam and Eve already have really good reason to believe. Um, and... Uh, he ultimately is successful. So um, he challenges this idea that God's a giver of good gifts. And you see um, Eve buys into it as she takes the fruit and she eats it, right? And she's, but, I mean, she, there's something she's doing too. I mean, she saw it as desirable, right? It was pleasing to the eye and desirable for wisdom. 
she wanted to do it too. It's not like she was, you know, an automaton or something that Satan just possessed. I mean, there's something about her that wanted this. Um, a moral failing on her part, I guess is a way to put it. And you see that Adam um, seems to adopt this same sort of thinking. When, when Eve brings the fruit to him, um, he, he, turn, and he, he eats of it, of course, and he turns around and when asked about it, blames God. He says, well, hey, look, it's, you, you gave me this woman here and, and um, you know, essentially this is, this is uh, her doing. And that's at least implicitly a suggestion that God, God you gave me something that was faulty here. Um, so Adam seems to buy into this, this idea and um, you, a lot of scholars will say, uh, Luther talked about this a lot, but that fundamentally what this passage shows us is that sin is basically our attempt to annihilate God. Um, it's our attempt to um, take God off the throne, put ourselves there, and say that, you know, I could have done it better. Um, in this case, you know, I would, I would have provided me with whatever, this wisdom that they thought was desirable, and all of the power and status and clout or whatever that may have come with it as being like God, um, I would have done that from the beginning um, if I was God. Um, and uh, I, I, or, or if not that, I, I would have given me someone else, someone who wouldn't do what Eve did and bring to me this fruit, you know. So th- there is that, that sense in here where, where Adam and Eve are, are beginning to set themselves up as um, judges of God. So... Um, and then another thing that's interesting about this text is that uh, there, it points out, and this almost seems obvious. It's like, well, duh, why, what's, it, it should go without saying. But there, there's often a separation between what's morally right, like moral righteousness, and what we desire. It's like, well, sure, I've, I've lived long enough, like self-reflectively enough to know that like, um, I don't always desire that which is good. Um, but the thing is, um, I, I thought I should mention it because the text mentions it, it seems to anyway, and we get a really clear picture of this in Isaiah 53 um, when he's prophesying about Christ. I want to just read this. He says, and everyone's very familiar with this text, but this is verse 1. Who's believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, And like a root out of the ground. And he had no form or majesty that we would look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom whom uh, men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And then Isaiah of course goes on to talk about what's actually going on in the incarnation of of Christ. Which is is a prophecy of God's actually working to reverse the, 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 the effects of the fall and bring salvation to his people. So it, it seems obvious and like a point not worth mentioning, but yet you find numerous times in scriptures that the, the, the writers of the, these passages are telling us about this. So I thought it was worth mentioning. Um, and I wanted to talk briefly about how Adam flouts his priestly duties um, to, to serve and guard God's sanctuary. Let's take guarding, for example. He was supposed to guard, um, as a priest, he was supposed to guard God's holy temple or sanctuary of, uh, of the garden. And he, he fails to do this because when Eve brings him 
the fruit, he doesn't instruct her. At least we don't have any, we don't have any indication of that in the text. He doesn't instruct her in proper worship of God. Instead, he takes it and goes along with what's happening, and he eats it, um, and eats unto death in this case. Um, but he, he, he should have been uh, like a prophet or like a priest would and said, hey, this is actually not something we do. God's, remember God's command. But he didn't do this, so he fails in, in guarding the garden against, uh, and God's temple against this. And of course, this in no way serves or cultivates the garden. In fact, it, what it does is it works to undo all of creation. It undoes the temple. Um, it, sin enters the world. Death enters the world um, you know, through sin. And what you actually find is that uh, between Genesis 3 and, and Genesis 7, which is where the story of Noah really begins, you find just, I mean, right away with Cain, you find death, murder, and it continues. And it, it just it proliferates and um, moves to entire, uh, basically, wicked cities and, uh, and societies are formed. And God becomes so upset with this, he relents that he made man, and so what does he do? Remember what we said uh, about creation, that he separated the waters above the earth from the waters beneath the earth, right, and filled that space? Well, he brings them back together, literally undoes creation. Because the, 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 the text, you know, of uh, Genesis 7 talks about the water started to rain, basically, the fountains of the deep to home, that, that, that word that we found in Genesis 1-2 uh, the, the fountains of the deep sprang forth, right? And so you have this image, if you're paying attention to the text, of the waters that were above the earth and the waters beneath the earth coming together, and it takes away the dry land and all of life except righteous Noah and his family. Um, so, uh, so far from cultivating the earth, Adam ultimately, um, through sin and death, destroys it. Um, so, okay, um, I'm sure... I don't know who's, I think Mike is talking about Noah, but he'll probably talk more about that. It's really fascinating. Um, so let's talk about the curse. So I said that there are three different addresses in, in chapter 3. Uh, I think it starts in verse, yeah, verse 14. Um, God addresses the serpent or Satan first, and he says that you're cursed. Um, he does not say to Adam and Eve, at least not directly, that they are cursed. Um, but I think that we, we know that they are, and we know that we are, uh, have come under a curse um, because we end up dying. Um, so, but we'll get there. So Satan comes under a curse. God tells us as much, and he says that you're going to crawl on your belly uh, and eat dust. And he later goes on to tell, uh, say that, um, that there's going to be enmity between Satan and the woman and her seed, Right? Well, here's, an in, here's another indication of the enmity that exists between Satan and the woman and her seed. Because um, it, it, this eating dust, Satan crawls on his belly and eats dust, okay? He's, he's pictured as a member of the animal kingdom, whether or not this, there's a lot of debate about, you know, what, you know, who's doing the talking here? Is this actually Satan? Has Satan possessed an actual snake? And the snake is talking it, Satan might be, uh, uh, is a seraphim, and seraphim are understood by some folks to be these serpentine-type angels. Um, they have all kinds of other attributes and stuff. I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, I don't know how to come down on that definitively either way, but either way, Satan seems to be talking here and doing, um, doing the tempting. And so, um, but he, he's forced to eat dust the rest of his life. Now, here's some of this interesting symbolism 
Adam is made, uh, is made of Adama, right? The, the Hebrew word for dirt or dust. Um, there's a play on words here between Adama and Adam. But um, if you're reading the Hebrew text, I guess you, you see this kind of pop out. But um, Adam's made of, he's the man of dirt. And he, you've got a picture of Satan as a member of the animal kingdom going around eating dirt. So this is, I think, supposed to call up in our minds that Satan is our great enemy, and he's doing what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, that he's pictured there as a member of the animal kingdom, in this case a lion, lion uh, roaming or prowling around, seeking whom he may devour. You, this same theme of Satan being our great adversary, which is what he's referred to as in 1 Peter, um, is, is all the way at the beginning. Peter's not just making this up um, thousands of years later, um, and uh, it's, it's here in Genesis. So um, go, let's move to Adam and Eve. Um, each of them have their, these tasks that they were given in creation frustrated. So Eve has this task of being the mother of all living, of, of helping um, fill the earth, right? Um, but this very important task that she has in the creation mandate is going to be frustrated um, through painful childbearing. Okay, Adam has a, um, a similar, um, not exactly, but it is similar, a similar sort of result because of the fall. And that's, he's going to have painful, toilsome labor with the soil just to, just to eat. Yeah. Not the same, I know. Um, um, and mutually, um, her desire is going to be contrary to his. And so this, when you talk about, think about the creation mandate, like to fill the earth and subdue it. I mean, if, if her desire is contrary to his, if she's, um, there's, uh, you know, I feel like, well, I'm not going to be careful here. I'll just say this. Um, I think Adam is the head here. He's a, he, he's a representative head. I think he is, he is um, the head of his family, so to speak. I think there, there are other reasons to think this, and you get this, this you know, Paul picks up on this in Ephesians 5. I think these are things are debated, I know, but that's my take on it. And so, um, but, but what you find is, I think, here a, a suggestion that Eve, Eve is going to basically buck the, the headship and authority of her husband. The, this, if they're butting heads, if Adam ends up being harsh with her and she's contesting his headship constantly and so on, I think that um, this is going to have negative implications for them as they try to subdue the earth, okay? It's not going to work out so well. Um, so they're going to have a mutual hardship in this area. Um, and I'll finish this and we're going to come back to you. Um, so I said that Adam and Eve weren't directly cursed here, but God does something in, in 3.17. Um, he says that he, he curses the ground. He says, when he's addressing Adam, he says, because of you, you know, um, the ground is cursed, right? And it's going to produce thorns and thistles, right? And this is part of the explanation for why there's going to be toilsome labor for Adam when he goes to work the ground, okay? But I think there's more going on here, too, than just the ground, the, the, the ground under Adam's feet producing thorns and thistles. Adam is himself of the ground. He's the man of dirt. And we see this very clearly when God tells him, hey, you're of dirt and you're going to return to dirt, okay? Um, you can't get a, a closer connection to the dirt than that. This is, you know, who you are. Um, and um, 
you're also going to be producing thorns and thistles. And I think that you, you see the first um, sort of fruits of that, maybe the wrong word, but uh, in Cain, um, Cain is a thorn, and he chokes out, um, you might say, the righteous tree or plant of Abel. Um, so this isn't just, I'm not just making this up, this language of applying, you know, talking about people in terms of being thorns and thistles is all throughout the Bible. You, I mean, every book of the Old Testament probably is not maybe overstating a bit, but I mean, all kinds of passages in the Old Testament refer to, refer to people, particular people, and then also groups of people as thorns. In particular, these people generally end up being, or groups of people, end up being the enemies of God's people, Israel. You know, they're, they're pricks in your eyes, thorns in your side, and so on. You see it all over the place. And Jesus picks up on this. Um, he refers, you know, he's talking about knowing a false prophet by, by his fruits, right? He says, you don't gather grapes from, from, uh, from thorns or uh, figs from thistles, do you? Right? You get, Jesus picks up on this same thing. Um, the people of the dirt, because of the fall, produce what the dirt produces. They also produce thorns um, that work unrighteousness in the world. So, um, I'm going to say one more thing, and I'm going to stop. By the way, there's a fall pattern um, in Genesis. You see very close uh, parallels between the fall of Adam and Eve. You see it in Noah. You see it in Abraham and, and other places, too. So, I, But I'm not going to go into that because there's too much. Um, but the gospel is still present here in all of this. Uh, the the, the Proto-Evangelium or Proto-Evangelion, some people say, but it's the first announcement of the gospel, and you see this um, in Genesis 3.15 with God's promise of a Savior, one who will come and uh, crush the head of the serpent. He'll have his heel struck, but he will crush the head of the serpent. Um, there's an announcement of the gospel here. You see God's faithfulness in um, bringing about a possibility for that seed when he, he destroys all the world, but he keeps uh, Noah and his family alive. Noah has uh, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, right? Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And uh, from Shem, you get, uh, I think, uh, Terah. Noah uh, fathered Shem. Shem fathered, uh, I believe, Terah. And then Terah uh, fathered uh, Abram, or Abraham. And then ultimately, you run this down to the line of David and then uh, to Christ. And you can see that genealogy pick up uh, in Matthew 1. So, um, God's faithfulness is present uh, throughout all of this, throughout all of our undoing of creation. He's not going to let us, he, he won't let us succeed. Um, I'll stop there. Anybody have any questions, anything to say? Yeah, what were, so can you tell me what you, repeat what you were saying, because I don't think I've, I understood it and I wanted to get through this, but I do want to understand what you're saying. Right, oh, yeah, yeah, your desire will be for your So some translations read, your desire will be for your husband. Um, and so, uh, others will read that uh, your desire will be contrary to your, to your husband. One of the re- so take the, the, the interpretation you're talking about or the translation you're talking about. Um, the, uh, uh, your desire will be for your husband. Well, a lot of times you'll have people go move forward uh, in Genesis, and they'll go um, to uh, the story of Cain and Abel uh, in Genesis 4, and uh, God says something like, you know, sin is crouching at the door. It seeks to, uh, it desires you or it seeks to overcome you, but you, but you have to overcome it. Um, and uh, it, it, they, I think they, they take this, it's, it's something that there's present in this idea of her desire will be for her husband to, to overcome him 
uh, in some way, overpower him, uh, uh, distort some kind of uh, relationship hierarchy there that should be in place. I, I, right, they do. It, but and, and consistent with what you're saying, um, Paul picks up the same idea in, in Ephesians 5, I think, when he's talking about husbands and wives. All right, I think I'm pretty good on time. It's 11.45. All right, thanks. Thank you. Mm-hmm.